Welcome everyone to the Operation Automation Podcast by Omron, where we are talking all things factory automation. My name is Carrie Lee, and I'm the America's Sales Manager for Early Career Development. I've been with Omron for three and a half years and have about 17 years of experience in automation. Sitting here with me is Kenny Heidel. Hi everyone, I am Kenny Heidel, and I'm a channel sales manager focusing on channel engagement. I've been with Omron for four years and have 15 years of combined factory and industrial automation experience. Kenny and I are neighbors at our Omron office and would often have conversations at the coffee machine or in the hallways where we would talk about new technologies and trends and, of course, the Chicago White Sox. We hope to recreate that time here in our podcast and share it with listeners so that you can learn along with us. So whether you are pouring yourself the first or the fifth coffee of the day, driving to your first appointment, or walking the dog, we hope to help you start your day off right with a little fun and hopefully you learn something new. So Kenny... What is our song this week? Do, 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 do. But minus the fact that I'm tone deaf, I hope that sounded somewhat like it. But we're talking about a semi-charmed life, right, Carrie? Yes, a semi-conductor charmed life, right? Bump. <laughs> we have an excellent guest today. We have Matt Hyatt. Welcome, Matt, to the Operation Automation Podcast. Hello, Carrie. Hello, Kenny. So before we get to our intro, Matt, we like to kick off the episode with the toughest questions. So what is your go-to takeout food order? Oh, it's going to be between ice cream and Thai food. They don't really mix well. <laughs> and I can't say I get them at the same time, but probably Thai food. My wife and I like spicy food. I think you're the first person that's actually brought up a dessert as their favorite takeout food. Um, so it's definitely something we haven't thought about, but when you said ice cream, I instantly, I think my mouth started to water. You haven't had ice cream in my hometown here. Oh. We have ice cream. It's the best thing we have going for us. I think <laughs> is the ice cream shop. So we go there regularly. Nice. Nice. And I mean, after Thai food, right? You need something to cool off, uh, after Thai food. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Matt. So second hard hitting question. If you have to get work done, what is your jam music that you put on to listen to to do so? Highway to hell. <laughs> <laughs> For many reasons. Yeah. In the last two years with COVID, I would say that would be it. Yeah. That's a great one. Okay. Uh, so what's your favorite hobby, Matt? Well, that's an easy one. It's mountain biking it's my whole family is is passionate about it so we're we're lucky that the little kids like to enjoy it and it's a big part of our life now have you ever gone uh mountain biking and then had thai food for dinner and capped off the day with some ice cream <laughs> well i'm glad i haven't eaten thai food before I went mountain biking. <laughs> right, right. That order is important. <laughs> we don't do that. But I would say when we travel and we like to travel and go to different places to mountain bike, we we generally always go get Thai food. So we've we've trained our two-year-old and our five-year-old to adapt their palate and, and get, you know, mild, mildly spicy Thai food. So, yeah, we definitely – the kids might eat ice cream and a little bit of chicken satay and we'll get the curries. That's awesome. I love nice. hearing about young kids who have uh, adventurous palates. Very cool. They have no choice. Yeah. <laughs> you will eat what is in front of you. 
Uh, well, we're happy to have you, Matt, uh, on the podcast because we're looking forward to to getting your insight and, and listening to your answers, kind of related to you know the the semiconductor industry and and the state that we're in today. Uh, but to kind of kick it off uh, for our listeners, if you don't mind, just give everybody kind of your background, you know, what, what your experiences in the industry, just to get everybody uh, knowing who you are. Great, sure. So I've been at Omron for. Four years and one day, actually. So this has been my first go around at working at an OEM like Omron. So my role is a strategic account manager and I manage uh, the, I'm in sales for semiconductor equipment manufacturers. Mm -hmm. And prior to that, I was in the electronics manufacturing industry for 12 years. So I was kind of frontline in the in the chip industry and dealing with uh, manufacturing and I was selling electronics to the semiconductor industry as well to the to the equipment manufacturers in my previous role. Gotcha. So a, a little migration out of uh, manufacturing into an OEM. Big change, right? Kind of, sort of, you know, mm -hmm. the last few years has been, you know, pretty intense on the electronic side, trying to find chips and and a lot of the semiconductor, the tool manufacturers have a lot of specific requests, customization requests, mm -hmm. and they that generally opens up the door back for custom designs, which leads into manufacturing uh, requirements that I get involved in as well. So it's it was nice to have the manufacturing background rolling into working for an OEM, but still being uh, intimate with manufacturing processes and steps. On the electronic side, so it's quite a um, quite a background in semiconductor. It makes me very excited that you are here because you've got a couple different perspectives you can share and help some of our listeners kind of get a better understanding for the industry. Understand, you know, we all hear chip shortage probably a couple times a day. Some of us more than others. So I'm excited to get a little better understanding from you today. But to start off, could you kind of just help our listeners who might not know all the details understand and walk us through the different steps of how chips are actually made? Sure, sure. Yeah, I'd love to. There's um, chips are all around us today. You know, with you look in your home and I think on my phone, I probably have 12 or 15 devices that are connected over Bluetooth. You know, I don't have a refrigerator connected to my phone yet, but I'm sure it's out there. Mm -hmm. But they're they're everywhere, and and in a given year, there's about a trillion chips made. Wow! Every every cool. single year, and so essentially, each one of you, Carrie and Kenny and me, we all contribute to that's that's about 130 chips for every person on Earth made every year. And obviously, wow. the number is growing, so that's just. It's a lot. I think a an, uh, an EV has a has about eighty different circuit boards in the electronic vehicle, and not everybody's got an EV. But just to mm -hmm. give you a you know each an average board has about eight hundred different chips on it. So mm -hmm. they're everywhere. So just to kind of I'll talk about chips and how they're made, and I'll I'll kind of keep it simple. There's generally about six rough categories. Each category has a bunch of different subsets. So the, the six steps are, and we've heard of a lot of these, there's deposition and then photoresist, lithography, etch, 
ion implantation. And then those are all front end steps. And then mm-hmm. I'm going to kind of summarize the, the, the back end of the chip process, which is called packaging. Mm-hmm. So basically wafers start in like a, a tube, like a, like a tube of salami <laughs> <laughs> uh, of a material that's basically pure silicon. And it, that's called the ingot. It's spelled I-N-G-O-T. So they take the salami and they slice it into really thin disks, which are about a half a millimeter thick. And that that's that's how wafers are made, right? They take a chunk of salami, slice it into really small disks. And then in the deposition phase, you alternate depositing films onto the wafer and you alternate between conducting films and insulating films on the wafer. So you kind of build up the wafer with different layers of conducting layers and isolating layers. And uh, what what you're doing is you're you're heating up gases into plasma. The plasma then is in the chamber and then it bonds to the wafer through a lot of different types of mechanisms. So that might be the most complicated thing I'm really saying. <laughs> there's a little more <laughs> later, but basically there's you know gas in the chamber and it bonds to the wafer and you're bonding, isolating and conducting layers there. And there's like a dozen different ways to to put different films down. They they're called films onto the wafer. And then some of these you've probably heard. Yeah, in just by being at uh, at Omron, even you know you've got. PVD, CVD, so that's physical vapor deposition, chemical vapor deposition, atomic layer deposition, selective deposition, all kinds of different ways to to put the material down. Hmm. So that's that's a big part of that of the process is you're laying down material. So then you move into the next phase and that's called the photoresist. And that's basically when the wafer is covered with with like a, a light sensitive film, kind of like um, it's just a really thin layer of film. And there's two types of this. It's called a resist. There's a positive mm-hmm. and a negative. Mm-hmm. The main one used in the industry is the positive. And basically there you you expose ultraviolet light to change the structure of this resist so that the resist becomes more soluble and can be uh, etched away. So uh, really, that's all I want to talk about for the photoresist <laughs> is you're putting down a film. So you've got deposition, you're putting down the layers of the conducting and isolating, and then you put a fi- another layer of a light sensitive film down. So that's a whole separate stage called the photoresist. Mm-hmm. So there's the main suppliers and the photoresist. You've heard of these companies is Fuji, right? Mm-hmm. Because this is very applicable to the camera industry, right? In photography, you're the mm-hmm. photoresist in like a dark room. Uh-huh. So got Fuji film and Dow Chemical are making these little resist layers. So then you're going in now. The third step is called lithography. And this is actually the most crucial step here because this step 
allows you to, it, it determines how small the transistors will be. And this is really what determines on the chip, the smaller the transistor, you, you get that they use less power. They mm-hmm. can, the, the signals can run faster. So this mm-hmm. is what everybody's trying to push in technology is smaller transistors, smaller geometries. And this is all done through that lithography phase. So, so lithography is really when the wafer is exposed to now this really, uh, it's, it's called DUV or EUV. So it's deep ultraviolet light or extreme ultraviolet light. <laughs> and just like cameras, this is, goes through a little reticle, which has the pattern of the circuit in there. So now you're, you're laying the pattern down onto that resist layer. Right. And mm-hmm. it actually works backwards where you are you're leaving, you're, you're putting the pattern down that you're going to remove. So what is left is going to be the circuit. I see. So when the light hits the resist layer through the reticle, there's a chemical change that allows the pattern to to stay onto the resist layer. OK, mm-hmm. so that's. These are really expensive tools. These, these, the the extreme, the EUV, uh, they, those those machines are close to a hundred million dollars. Wow! I think they're so expensive they don't even really sell them. They just they just lease them out and they charge by beam shot. Mm. I don't I don't know what the the beam the pulse is per, per charge per pulse, but the regular DUVs might be five or ten million, and the EUVs are like twenty x. Um, there's not many of those made every year, but each fab would have one of those. So, so I have a question before you get to the next part, because the next part's assembly, right? Uh, etch would be the oh, next etch. one, and then you, two more than uh, assembly. Uh, just one thing you mentioned was the, ge- the geometry, and everybody's trying to get smaller. What's kind of the limiting factor or the hurdle to keep getting smaller and smaller? Is it physics or is it the ability of the tools to make small shapes does that make sense Mm -hmm. yeah a lot of it's in the control of the Mm. of being able to to bring up the temperature and control the gases and to be able to get those to to profile the right way so that they can put down a thinner layer i see The, the thinner the layer you can make smaller traces and, you know, the layers, each circuit goes down between layers of the wafer here. So the smaller they can actually put the films down and, and then they can resist um, and then they can, they can you know, re, if they can have smaller traces in the in, through the reticle that are on thinner layers, they can remove less and less and have smaller traces. So it's a lot of it's 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 scattered across, uh, uh, I would call it just in terms of control, you've got. Um, not not knowing exactly how much you're removing is a big problem in the industry, and so oh. a lot of times there's there's a there's a known problem of when they remove a certain amount of material, they use a time based algorithm to uh, know when to stop um, uh, polishing, mm-hmm. but sometimes they have to under polish or over polish. They're they're never precisely on point. And there's a there's like a, you know, a known problem that using a time based algorithm is is not going to be a fi- uh, sufficient 
in the next couple of years. So they need to find different ways to determine when they've polished precisely enough at the right wow. nanometer. Jeez, wow. So there's 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 questions around how do you know if you do you test it electrically? Can you tell if there's a sound change between materials? So this is kind of what is being thought about right now. So okay. it's probably instances like that for 500 different instances <laughs> create the problem. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. Okay, so the next step, sorry, it was just interesting to me. Yeah, I'm glad you asked. Okay, so after lithography, we move into the etch process. We've all heard of etch. So now you know what the resist step is. And so, like I said, you're going to remove the degraded resist pattern mm -hmm. and reveal, reveal what the, the intended pattern is now. And this is essentially how the circuits are made. And by forming these conducting features, without uh, by by following this process, you're not impacting the the integrity or the structure of the chip. So this this is kind of done over and over. This depositing and etching is done over and over hundreds of times. And in in some chips like 3D NAND or memory that which goes into memory cards. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You'll have up to 175 layers on on that one wafer, wow. and again, you're talking in in a half a millimeter. And how long does that take? That process, start to finish, you're looking at about three months from wow. slicing the salami to putting them in a box and shipping them to a distributor. Wow! And testing. I, in my head, as you're talking, I have like a picture of a sandwich since you started with salami. And I'm like, all right, first we cut the salami. Then we are putting other things on the sandwich. And then we're doing other things to the sandwich. But, uh, but sorry, sorry for derailing that. Go on. <laughs> all the little pieces of fat, the white parts yep. in there, those are chips. Okay. Yep. <laughs> so where's the mayo in this situation? Is that the photo resist part maybe? I don't know. That would be in packaging when you uh, cap it off for like a heat sink. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so over and over, lots of depositing, lots of etching. Mm -hmm. And now you need to kind of charge the whole wafer up with, okay, so the, if you remember, the, the salami is 100, it's 99.9% .9 raw silicon. Mm -hmm. And so silicon is not a perfect insulator or a perfect conductor. It's actually somewhere in between. So you need to actually charge the ions, electrically charge them, and into the silicon to allow the flow of electricity, right? Mm -hmm. So this is called the ionization step. This is the last one before packaging, really. So you... You charge the you charge the the wafer, and this charging now creates transistors, which are basically like little switches in the circuit, and that allows the electricity to be controlled, right, on and off, mm -hmm. open open and closes, zeros and ones. So now the entire layer or wafer is ionized, and the remaining sections of resist that were protecting the areas 
are now that it should not be etched are now removed. So now you're left with just the uh, just the circuit that is now uh, ionized. And same thing, this process goes back into the cycle and this gets mixed in between with the etching and the depositing and the ionization here. So it goes back and forth, back and forth. And then you're essentially ready for packaging. So that's those were all steps in the front end mm -hmm. of, of semiconductor manufacturing. Packaging has a dozen or so steps within packaging. And mm -hmm. so basically you take a fancy saw with uh, diamond tips on it, and obviously it's really thin, and you mm -hmm. chop the wafer up into little squares, and those are called die. And those are really small, you know, a millimeter by millimeter. And that's that's the, the guts of the chip. And the die are placed onto a substrate, which is like a, a baseboard for the die. And then on the, on, the, on the baseboard, you have metal foils or little pads that direct input and output signals of the chip. So the die is on top of the, of the base substrate. The substrate communicates through the, the pads, and that's how it communicates. And the, then you put slap some mayonnaise on top. That's the, it's called a heat <laughs> spreader. And that goes on top, and that's basically like a heat sink. So you've got mm. spreader, die, substrate, and pads at the bottom. So I'm not going to go too much into packaging because that's a whole lot of, there's test. There's, uh, there's a lot of different steps in the test. But those are, that's basically a five-minute summary of a three-month process <laughs> how <laughs> chips are made. That was awesome. It really yeah. helped kind of put it in perspective. I've definitely heard some of those words. So now I'm, I'm glad, Matt, that you could explain those. So now I can like piece it together in my brain of how, how it actually goes together and, and happens that way. And obviously with a lot of uh, those different processes and, and different manufacturers, you know, one word I know I've heard a lot in the semiconductor industry is copy exact. Um, I know you know and you've heard it and you you live it, right? But um, – can you kind of talk about what what is copy exact uh, from an industry perspective and how it came about and how it's kind of evolved? Sure, copy exact. It's part of my daily life here. So, I, copy exact <laughs> was actually a term coined by Intel twenty plus years ago when they needed to basically replicate or duplicate their own internal process for their development site in America, up in Oregon. And then they wanted to set up a production site in, in Asia. So they said, we need to build the exact copy of our site in Portland in Asia. And mm -hmm. the processes need to be exactly the same. And I'm talking about all the way down to the ESD tiles on the manufacturing floor, the duct design, for the HVAC system, and obviously the same tools and equipment and, and every relative humidity, everything. So that's where it really started was from an internal uh, term. And then obviously the next, the evolution would be that they have their suppliers do the same thing they're doing. Now, we don't necessarily need to have the same duct design in one plant compared to another. But they do kind of, 
it started next with the requirement that the tool manufacturers needed to uh, control the way they manufacture their tools. So the 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 people making the tools that go into the fabs. So mm-hmm. they couldn't be selling Intel tools that had different software or different uh, power supplies from one tool to the other. They needed to be copy exact. So the mm-hmm. tool needs to be exactly the same exact tool. So that started, you know, 20 years ago. And the 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 flow down after that requirement now is spread across the whole industry. And everybody has heard at least some version of the word copy exact, it's particularly in, in audits. Mm-hmm. And so really in practicality, the, the 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 tool manufacturers and the fabs, they they require that. So I guess I want to make sure that it's clear that there the 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 change is not um, completely unwelcomed. The what what it really means is that if there is going to be a change, so lots of times there's going to be a change because of a performance upgrade or an enhancement, or just as common, there's obsolescences that, that force a change. Either you can't get a chip or an OEM obsoletes apart. And so change has to happen. It's a necessary evil. So it's not, I don't want to convey that there's no change allowed, but mm-hmm. what it's really turned into is like a, uh, a practice around managing change control. Mm-hmm. Almost has, has birthed the new, um, a new quality segment. Yeah. Yeah. And it's generally a good thing and has helped suppliers in the industry become more diligent with their change management. If, if a supplier plays in the semiconductor industry generally, and they've gone through some audits and they supply to the industry, they generally have to be a little more mindful than they would with like the consumer industry. Now automotive's mm-hmm. got some strict and medical you know, they're all of these industries generally have a good collaborative, cohesive relationship with the OEM, like ourselves. Mm-hmm. So generally, you know, we if there's a change taking place, we need to be notifying the you know, we sell a lot to the tool manufacturers. Mm-hmm. So they, they need to know that we're going to have a change coming down the pipeline and they want to have the replacement in hand and they want to test it for for at least a year before they and they can fully validate the 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 replacement and then once it's approved and they'll have to get sometimes approval from their customer like intel and there's only five copy exact customers out in the industry here not every fab is has um the strict copy exact requirements but the five big ones do mm-hmm. so Essentially, there's just, you know, a a large window of advanced notification here. So kind of fast forward to that's how it was since I started working in the industry 15 years ago and what it's been over the last couple of years. We I've noticed an inflection point where since since I started at Omron, um, I've seen the volumes of tools being produced has has doubled. This is this is a huge deal. So, what I'm referring to as the wafer fab equipment volumes that were being produced in 2018 
are now, um, I'm sorry, they, yeah, they've, they've doubled. So that means the number of tools going into fabs just four years ago was half of what it is now. So the, the volumes are not really, they're barely sustainable aside from being able to produce, you know, electronics and the issues that the tool manufacturers are having with producing, being able to produce the tools, the volumes are up really high. So all the sub-tier suppliers that make the products to support the build of the tool, we're all scrambling to try to meet these increased demands. So when you now when we have a product that goes obsolete or when we can't get a part because of a chip shortage, what is a, a tool maker forced to do? They can't wait one year for a replacement when they've got thousands of tools at risk and they're, they're $4 million a pop. Mm -hmm. So they've had to kind of evolve and take a different look at copy exact. And so COVID really changed the, the way copy exact is handled. And it's really, yeah, I've seen it be handled, I guess, really like more practically. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like the if if um, if some if a supplier wants to recommend a replacement resistor that is more available, before it was make me a make me a sample, put it on a circuit board, deliver it to me. I'll test it for six months, and I'll come back to you six months later and tell you I approve it. And now, if it's the same value resistor, and and we want to make a replacement, a recommended replacement. The, the the approval can go through like a committee and get approved in a week or two without even a hardware uh, sample delivered. What a change. What a change. I noticed you said that, you know, we can't get them the parts because there's a chip shortage. It's like the snake eating its own tail, right? The way we've, the situation we've kind of gotten into right now. It's kind of interesting. It is a vicious cycle. <laughs> Oh man. So kind of on that note, you know, we're, we've been talking about chip shortage quite a bit. Um, we've had episodes on supply chain. I think it's something everyone that all three of us deal with daily in our lives. Um, can you kind of talk about some of the factors that got us into this situation, kind of how demand and supply both were affected in, um, during COVID in the, um, semiconductor industry? And then is it over or do you have a crystal ball to see when it might be over? Oh, it's crystal ball. I sure wish I did. <laughs> I, I have kind of been feeling like it never was going to be over for a while because I know a lot of the complexities that were, there's too many irons in the fire for it to just end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. But so the chip shortage has surely been front and heavy for me I, I working for a electronics oem like omron and sometimes i feel like it's the the like the the bug in the windshield situation it's some days i was the windshield <laughs> getting splattered with bugs and all of my customers bugs came <laughs> flying at me with all these requests of i need more 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 and escalations and other days I was the, the bug, right? I had to deliver the message that my factory wasn't able to deliver product because they couldn't get the chips. And <laughs> these these distributors, the, 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 the big global distributors, they even would 
deliver their parts to our factories and they just they would ship short or the part wouldn't even show up at all and it was happening across all suppliers and all industries and that's what's really frustrating is there's a lot of, a lot of times there's no heads up and because mm-hmm. the demand's up there's the people in the warehouse at the distributor they're not they're new they're not trained on all the processes they don't pick the right parts they don't put them in the box they ship them to us and they're not there so it's it's just it was a, it's been a ca- catastrophe between the, the all of the things lining up here so yeah having to pick between bug and windshield not not my favorite but it's been a <laughs> we persevered here and we've done a great job of 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 managing managing this and, and and staying out in front of our communications and that's that's a lot of um a lot of the the work that we've had to do so thinking through i i have done a lot of research in the past about what caused the chip shortage when this was first happening and and really, it, it kind of started with the automotive companies. And, and actually, pre-COVID in 2019, nobody talks about this anymore, but the U.S. placed an export ban on Huawei. The, oh, yeah. You know, makes, makes the iPhone, right? So, uh. so Chinese, there was hoarding going on. Chinese companies started hoarding out of fear of being put on the U.S. entity list. So that kind of was a bad way to start pre-COVID. COVID mm-hmm. came and the automotive industry panicked and they thought there was going to be a recession and nobody was going to be buying cars. So the automakers canceled all their orders with the chip manufacturers due to like a pessimistic forecast. So in turn, the fabs readjusted their planning. All right, and then all of this so, and I don't know if you know, but the automotive industry, they, they operate in just in time right. uh, planning. So they don't stock a lot of material that's known in the industry here. So, so this is why, how they operate like that and why their orders were canceled. So all this freed up demand that Ford and Toyota had was, was for, uh, filled from consumer demand, right? Everybody started the stay at home, stay at home orders were in place and everybody needed to get their webcams and PCs and more routers and companies had to buy more servers and doctors had to buy the the mobile health carts and everyone monitoring their pets extracurricular mm-hmm. activity <laughs> yeah, yeah so really that that you know you got everything from data data telecom IoT all that stuff just basically came crashing in. You had the whole infrastructure, um, critical infrastructure bill from the government and they were doing all the server work. So really you've got basically just a swap. Automotive went out, consumer came in, then the economy never crashed. And so everybody got stimulus money Mm-hmm. They're watching their dogs on their cameras, and now they want to buy cars. And so the orders come back in from the automotive industry. That really then just now then you've got all the production issues that every manufacturing company has with COVID and shutdowns and tons of demand and and lots of production issues. And then if you remember in Texas, we had severe weather. Right. Yeah. Yep. The freezes. Our warehouse, I think, was shut down for three days. Mm-hmm. 
Samsung and NXP and Infineon, they all lost two weeks of production there in Texas. So, yeah, that's not all the fabs in Asia, but it just it it, it they had certain core technologies that are made in those plants and that that really affected a lot of different products here. So, yeah, yeah, it's been 2 years we've we've been in this since 2020 and everybody said it's going to be over at the end of the year. You know, 2020 everybody said, "Oh, it'll be over at the end of the year." 2021, end of the year, things will get better. <laughs> And 2022, we trust that. that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, there are so many different things, and I, I haven't seen the like hockey stick curve mm-hmm. of things getting better in production. I have seen that there are some fabs that have canceled some orders for tools, which is really interesting. It's not a big number, but it it does mean that probably it's the ramp is probably starting to tail off, and it's probably starting to level at a lower level of acceleration, not flat or decline, just not such steep acceleration. Mm-hmm. So I think it, and it's not going to just go away. It'll be kind of like COVID part of our life. Mm-hmm. And maybe two to three years from now, it'll be once a month. We talk about it <laughs> instead of every day. Instead so I, of every I day. <laughs> yeah. I got a couple, a couple more uh, this year, next year and probably taper off. Okay. I mean, at least there's some light at the end of the tunnel. It might be a little dim right now, but I like the optimism there. It's a lot of smart people working on it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's good to, you know, it's good to hear the, that optimistic tone, like Carrie said. Um, and, you know, we've obviously, I'm sure this has caused a lot of the, the fabs to, to change the way they think. You know, we talked about a little bit with copy exact, you know, how, how have you seen, you know, us as Omron, we have a lot of different technologies and solutions that can help chip manufacturers and fabs meet their goals and, and start to help ramp up. Uh, you know, how have you seen our solutions start to help in the semiconductor industry really try to try to get us back on track? Yeah, I think that's actually Omron's always been been thinking about how to help societal needs with mm-hmm. medical devices and in the automation division there, I've seen firsthand a few things that we've been able to do to, to, to help these customers with their initiatives here. Uh, for instance, there's a, there's a, a big, a big push for a green initiative and to reduce energy consumption in the fabs. And, um, one of the, I, I, all of the, the, like I said, there's 300 tools in a fab and they're all operating. A lot of them operate at 480 volts. They use a lot of power to make these, to make these chips. They use a lot of water in their abatement process as well for cleaning the wafer. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of byproduct of water, a lot of electricity. And I think, I think that they, I've seen somewhere in some research that if, that when there's a, a unplanned downtime, so there's mm-hmm. obviously there's planned downtime, but unplanned is really uh, wreaks havoc across the fab here. And I think I saw something that 80% of unplanned downtime will last for about a four hour, four hours or greater of time. And the generally the rule of thumb is it's about 500k an hour. Of, of a of a production line, so 
uh, th there's what I'm getting at here is is the Omron's been able to help with helping the the fabs do two things here. They'll help them stay more productive and keep their lines running and also reduce the amount of energy consumption through the use of predictive maintenance products. Mm. So I see a lot of adoption and inquiries from customers asking about what predictive maintenance solutions do we have? And so all the way from you know the different products with, that we offer, we can help literally reduce the unplanned downtime here at the fab, which is good for the environment and good for profits at these at the fabs. And did you want to say something? Well, I was going to say like that, that, that's an interesting point too, because I think, I feel like when, when we talk about predictive maintenance, right, typically the low hanging fruit is the automotive industry because we know that's a, that's a proven thing. Every minute that production lines down, cars are not rolling off, but it's a different way to think about it outside of just the automotive industry. There's still other industries that have huge impacts with unplanned downtime. I saw that the auto, automotive industry had uh, that they're when they're down, it's at two million dollars an hour, mm -hmm. right? Because I don't know if it comes down to the twenty thousand dollar car they're making or or versus a, a fifty dollar chip. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. volumes aren't the same, but yep. still, it's it's pretty significant. Yep. Yeah, another area that that is that I'm seeing a a trend is with these tighter geometries that are being forced to get, you know, the, everybody wants chips to operate on less power. You want your phone to last longer, the battery, everything's getting smaller and smaller, those those transistors. So in order to do that, you there you need to actually sense more, sense more and collect more data in the chamber, outside of the chamber on the tool. And so this is this actually this means cameras and sensors really and miniature ones. And so gases need to be run at exactly the right temperature. They need to come up to temperature at just the right time and f for for just the right amount of time. That deposition film needs to get put down. So same same thing with with robots. You know, there's robots moving these wafers around. And same thing with motion control. The competition within the fabs is they're, they're competing on price. One fab is competing in a, against another fab, Samsung mm -hmm. and Intel. So throughput is really, mm -hmm. you know, there's, is, is really important. So moving the wafer as quickly as possible without it falling off the robot's end effector, the wrist, is, is critical, right? So there's acceleration is really an important topic in motion control moves deceleration and critical placement. And so how the wafer gets centered into the different chambers is really important in the motion control. So motion control is the advancements in motion control and and then in the cameras and sensing, those are kind of areas that I think I see a lot of push in, right? So mm -hmm. you got throughput, throughput is one area and then you've got quality, which is, which is like the sensors and the cameras. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and obviously you you explained to us the the process of making it and how intricate it is. So I think it even puts more of an emphasis on having precision and good control. You know, talking about cameras and temperature controllers on top of robotics. Like, if anything is a little bit off, right? It ultimately I think affects throughput and it affects 
longevity probably of the the quality of the of the chips, right? Yeah, and that's where copy exact is important because mm -hmm. if if I, if somebody were to make a control board that goes onto a tool in the fab and we changed a resistor without notifying anyone about it, when you notify, basically, it gives the tool maker a chance to to test and verify that there's no change in their recipe performance. Mm -hmm. So say we just change a simple resistor and we don't tell anyone about it. That resistor, so then that machine now is making wafers and say a company like some Facebook, it has a server <clears throat> with a bunch of Broadcom chips on it. And those Broadcom mm -hmm. chips are made on a tool that has a control board that has a different resistor value on it. And nobody mm -hmm. told anyone about it. But all of a sudden, the the server, the, the, the CPU or something on the board overheats and the board crashes. And now the server's down on that one server. And now you can't go on Facebook. You can't play. What was it? Farmville? Farmville was the big one back in the day. <laughs> Years ago. God, yeah. that dates us. <laughs> anyway, that this is a good example of something of a why copy exact is in place, because it would take basically Facebook to do a debug analysis of the serial lot on that board that they bought with which serial number of that chip was made from which fab at what time. And then the tool manufacturer says, okay, they use this tool, which had this board on it that had a different resistor that was put on four years ago. Right. And, and mm -hmm. they, they, they put that together with Google and Apple and all four of their servers are crashing. And they say, aha, it's, it's, it's traced back to this one resistor change. But these have been out in the field for two years running. And so it just creates just immense amount of chaos. And that's why there's the the requirements of the advanced notification and the testing and the validation are in place so that the the the, the slight variance in chip manufacturing, they don't make it out into the field. Mm -hmm. Now you understand how chips are made and <laughs> why copy exact is important. And hopefully we can continue playing farm bill. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, Matt, this was really awesome. I feel like uh, I'm much smarter now. I can tell everybody at dinner parties how uh, chips are made and why there's a chip shortage. Um, and I'll know that my facts are actually true this time. So uh, <laughs> thank you again. This was a great episode. Really enjoyed talking with you. And um I guess that's about it, right? Hold the phone now. Can't we can't let him out of here. We can't let Matt out of here without a little bit of trivia. I tried, Matt. <laughs> All right. Tried you know out. Thai food and pizza or ice cream. <laughs> and after this we're gonna go for Thai food and ice cream listening to Highway to Hell. So uh all right, Matt. This will be a multiple choice question because I think it'd be pretty hard if I just left it not that way. So what was the size of the first semiconductor integrated circuit? Physical size. Was it A, half inch by half inch? B, seven sixteenths by one sixteenth? C, one inch by one inch? D, two inches by two inches? 
gosh, I was starting to do conversions into millimeters. And I think, <laughs> I think I just need to be safe and say D because I know the supercomputers were really big in the 70s and I would imagine the integrated circuit was a lot bigger than a little 0201 chip now. So it's a D two inch by two inch. So I had this exact same thoughts, but it actually is B. So were the like super? Go ahead, Carrie. Oh, I was gonna say, were those supercomputers? They probably had vacuums, right? Instead of transistors and like vacuum tubes. They did. Yeah. Massive. Wild. <laughs> So there we go. As as much I, I had the same thing. I was like expecting to to find the answer being like, all right, it was ten inches by ten inches, and uh, you could like play pong on it or something. Like, that, right? <laughs> like uh, but uh, yeah, Matt, thank you very much. This has been a very insightful and informative uh, discussion. I definitely feel a lot smarter not only about how they're made, but how we got in the situation we are, and uh, also what you know how Omron solutions and and. And technologies are really contributing to help help bring the semiconductor industry and the, the chip shortage back online. Great. Well, I'm glad we got to do it. And it was always a good excuse and reason to meet up with you and Carrie. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks, Matt. Now on to the Thai food. Thank you, everyone, for joining Carrie and me for the Operation Automation podcast. If you have topics you'd like to hear discussed on future episodes, please send them to our email address, operationautomation at omron.com with podcast idea in the subject line. Finally, all these cool things you learn about on this podcast can be found at automation.omron.com. Until next time, we put the fun in factory automation. Factory automation.